Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks um, advocacy-based group. And we work out of um, Minnesota, and we provide a multitude of platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort worldwide. We believe by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those live with the disease in a dignified, purpose-filled fashion. And together we know um, we're making a difference because we were recognized by Dr. Oz and ShareCare as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, and that was not just our doing. That was everybody's doing. That's sharing the information, um, those clicks, those likes, um, those those message, messages at meetings um, that you're sending out to people, uh, telling them about Alzheimer's Speaks in our platform. Um, we can't do any of this alone. Um, this is a disease that really takes us all to pull together. And so I'm, I'm so thrilled and honored to be able to um, facilitate these conversations and be able to meet such amazing people along the line and see such significant changes taking place um, all around the world by this simple philosophy of having a conversation and sharing knowledge. At our hearts, um, you know, we just want to continue to raise awareness and give voice um, to everyone. That means those that have the disease, um, <clears throat> family members and loved ones that are caring for someone who has dementia, um, as well as professionals. And we have had everything on the show from people biking across uh, <clears throat> the country to raise money um, to um, movie directors and singers and songwriters, to authors like we're going to have today, um, to celebrities. Um, it's, just, it's just a really wide platform. And I think it's so important for us to understand what we all have to give, um, how we can all make a difference, how we can all advocate in a little different fashion. So we'd love you to join us in the conversation, and you can do that in a couple of different fashions. You can call in live to the show, which is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. Or you can use the chat box, and I'll be monitoring both of those as we go along. 
Now, before I introduce our guest today, who I am just so excited to have with us, um, I do always like to highlight just a a few organizations that I think just don't, uh, enough people don't know about them, and they're very important organizations when it comes to dementia. The first is Alzheimer's Disease International, and that is a group based in London that is the um, association of all Alzheimer's associations. So if you're not sure where to go and where to start, they're a great base to figure out who's closest to you. Plus, they have all the international information and research data that's been pulled together along with some other social supports. Um, And they also have a conference coming up in May in Puerto Rico. And I think the deadline for the early bird is is still out there. I think you can still get that maybe today. Um, And you can just go to um, alz.co.uk or just Google Alzheimer's Disease International. Another wonderful organization is called the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, and they have been around for more than 20 years. And they are working really hard at taking more of a holistic approach um, to prevention and living with the disease. So meditation and what to eat and exercise, great, great resource. And you can find them, again, by Googling Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation or just going to www.alzheimersprevention.org. Now, many people are also dealing with specific types of dementia other than Alzheimer's disease. And so the Lewy Body um, Dementia Association is a wonderful, wonderful resource for those dealing with Lewy Body. And their organization, their their URL is very easy. It's just lbda.org, lbda.org. There's also the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration, and they've made their URL very simple as well. It's www.theaftd.org, theaftd.org. And then the National Aphasia Association really helps people when it comes to um, those that are having trouble speaking. They have great resources. And so you can, um, you know, again, Google them or go to www. A-P-H-A-S-I-A dot org. That's aphasia, A-P-H-A-S-I-A dot org. The Alzheimer's Studies um, Group is a fantastic place to check out a new, um, actually it's a third trial on tau that they're testing, and they're still looking for participants, and you can just go to alzheimersstudies.com Or if you're on Facebook, you can go to the Alzheimer's team and you'll be able to hook up with them. In addition to just some organizations, there are also some great companies out there providing some, I think, socially significant um, help. And one of them is called Coral Health with Music First. And Coral Health is a research-based kind of prescription with music. And it helps shift people's moods and attitudes, um, helps them wake up, go to sleep, eat, um, shift gears. And, you know, if you just Google Coral Health, and that's C-O-R-O-Health.com, 
um, you'll you'll be able to get a lot of great information. They do have an application for phones called Music First. And if you go to, again, corohealth.com, you'll be able to find out more information about Coral Health. Um, Puzzle With Me with Jane Snyder does a wonderful job. Again, a lot of people like to keep busy and um, do puzzles, but, you know, there's too many pieces and they're too small. So she's created um, a puzzle with less pieces, bigger in size, and more um, age-appropriate. And that's called PuzzleWithMe.com. Jiminy Wicket is a great intergenerational game that can be done with families or it can be hooked up like they're doing with schools and memory care units. Absolutely a fantastic um, you know, way to have some fun and create some smiles. And that's James Creasy's company, JiminyWicket.com, and that's J-I-M-I-N-Y-W-I-C-K-E-T.com. And then the Purple Angel Project, of course, I would be admiss if I didn't mention them. Um, You can find information about the Purple Angel Project, which is the new global symbol for dementia, one that needs no words, one that has no barriers for language and is being picked up and utilized by individuals, companies, and communities. It is something that is free of charge that everyone can get involved in. Um, and Ostrich Care is sponsoring posters for education and also stickers and appliques that that people can um, put in their store window. So, again, some really cool, cool things going on um, in the world at large. Um, Last, I want to mention, if you did not partake in the... um, free tele-summit that will be going through the end of the week, um, I would recommend that you go ahead and register for that. Again, you can find information on the tele-summit along with the Purple Angel Project on our website, um, and that's just um, alzheimerspeaks.com. They've got a great lineup. Um, There's about three speakers each evening. Um, I had the opportunity to speak last night, and it was quite the honor. So, um, this is something very new. Um, there really hasn't been something like this before. And so you're going to get, uh, again, um, people talking from all over the world with different perspectives, those with dementia, uh, those in large organizations, and um, th- those that just have an opinion and are making a difference out there. So I would encourage you to to check that out. Um, let me go ahead and introduce our guest today. I'm, I'm really excited to have Jerry Sandusky with us. And Jerry is the author of Forgotten Sundays, um, and he is the play-by-play voice for the NFL's Baltimore Ravens. He's also the sports director for Baltimore's WBAL-TV, and he's a noted authority on communication, motivation, perception, and change. And he has won <clears throat> the Emmy, uh, won an Emmy and the Edward R. Morrow Award for Outstanding Broadcast, which is, you know, quite the kudos. He is the son also of former NFL coach John Sandusky. And Jerry really found his own niche in coaching, 
as president of the Sandusky Group, and uh, which is a communications and media presentation, you know, kind of skills and coaching. And um, Jerry's coaching and consulting work um, has focused on helping professionals shine. So he really does a, a fantastic job. He's got a great heart. He and his wife founded the Joe Sandusky Fund to honor um, Jerry's late brother, um, which is a whole other story. But <clears throat> this fund um, grants college scholarships to students who demonstrate passion, talent, um, and innovation, and drive to fulfill to fulfill their dreams. Uh, Jerry lives with his family in in Baltimore, and like I said, I'm just I'm so excited to have him talk about this story that he has written. Um, it's it's a passionate <clears throat> story about his personal experience um, with dementia. So welcome, Jerry. How are you today? Lori, it's great to be with you. I'm terrific today and delighted to get a chance to, to visit with you today. Well, I like I said, I've, I've been really, really excited about having you on the show. I'm, I, uh, I, I, I just want to talk so much about, um, you know, sports and dementia and this this whole effect and and how it impacts, you know, your family as well and and you know what you saw from it and and how you dealt with it. So, can you give us a little background, basically, um, on your on your father? Um, you know, when when he got his diagnosis and kind of how that went down and and what your sure. experience was. My father was a uh, he's part of the greatest generation, World War II veteran. Started playing in the NFL in 1950, played until the late 50s, then began coaching in the NFL in the late 50s, and coached until 1994. When he retired, he was 70 years old and immediately started to help coach a local high school team where he coached for about five years. And then during one of the high school football games, uh, a young ran up on the sidelines and got tangled up with my father, and his cleats gouged my father's leg and, and lacerated his leg and had a big cut and needed several stitches. Well, the doctor who attended to my father said, well, sir, you know, clearly, you know, this is a very dangerous situation. You're not able to get out of the way of the players anymore. You you can't be coaching anymore. Laurie, within a month, he started to show all of the signs, now in hindsight, of early onset, of onset of, of Alzheimer's. And within a couple of months, he was, he was in, a, in a quick decline. And he was diagnosed. He wasn't diagnosed with Alzheimer's until about two years later. This was this was 2001, so things are far more advanced now than they were then. And he he had it for five years until he died at the age of 80. And I frame the story that way because in all of the research that I'm seeing done, and, and some of it's quite impressive, I I've yet to see much done in the area that I've come away from the experience believing very strongly about, and that is Alzheimer's is as much a condition of the soul as it is of the brain. And oh. by that, I mean it, it's manifested through the brain. But as I, as I looked at my father and then I looked at a lot of his peers and, and I looked at a lot of other people, I, I'm seeing this trend of Alzheimer's seems to begin where a sense of connection to self ends. You know, and that was that, very much a case with my father. 
that's beautifully put, and I think so many people who are living with this disease would agree with that. Um, and it's so important for us to keep that soul connection going. And and you know that was one of my frustrations. I've been dealing with this for thirty years with my mom. She started in at her mid fifties at my age, um, you know, having problems and. You know, it was kind of poo-pooed, and there really wasn't anything that they could do for her, and it was hormones, and, you know, it was all those types of things. Um, and, and everything was, was really focused on the research, you know, of the, the disease itself. You know, where is it coming from? <clears throat> and it really wasn't at all person-centered about, you know, how do, we, how do we help this person live with the disease, which to me is just such a a basic need that we all want to survive whatever comes in our life. And so I just, I love that, that phraseology that you've, you've used. Um, I think that that really gets to the, gets to the heart of things. Um, Would you agree that not only it affects their soul, but those that love them? Absolutely. I think it's such a profound challenge to everyone involved in any degree of caregiving. Any any person whose life whose life touches the person who's directly affected by Alzheimer's is challenged. It 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 completely challenges your your sense of of uh, helplessness, your sense of relationship, um, your sense of self. Because when you know my father was was a monolithic figure, he was the patriarch of the family. We called him Big John later in his life because. He just had such a presence. Everybody knew him as Big John. He was physically big. He was he had a big presence. And so when you watch this this Gibraltar esque figure literally get lost in his own body and and lose sight of the fact of his presence that was that was once able to fill a room just by walking into it, it it, it throws everybody's balance off. I, I think it, I think it challenges everybody's sense of equilibrium. Yeah, I. I agree, and I think that that's one of the things with this disease, again, that, you know, we're not looking at in a big enough way, and we're, we're, not, um, we're not helping people grow together in this new relationship um, that develops, and, and I think that that's critical, and I think it's the only way that we're really going to be able to um, survive and live in a healthy fashion you know, with this disease is how do we come to terms with um, who everybody has now become? Um, and I think that's why efforts like yours, Laurie, are, and please uh, everybody understand that I am by no means dismissing the medical research. I am completely <laughs> in favor of any and all medical research, expanding it, continuing it. But I just believe it's deeper than just the medical manifestation, which is why your relationship focus on on, on caregivers and and, and the, the holistic impact of this disease are so important because, as I was mentioning, when you see someone lose their connection with their own life, it impacts mm-hmm. your relationship with them as well as your own sense of of self in the journey. And it's largely what my book, Forgotten Sundays, is about. It's about the journey a man makes in his life, starting as a boy, seeing his father as this iconic figure, getting to know him in the arc of your relationship as a man, as a peer, only to see his decline right as you are ready to have a peer relationship with him. And and it leaves you feeling completely lost at times, but also embracing 
the value of your name and the importance of your journey in relationship to a, to a, to a man who is your father. Mm-hmm. You know, you have written this book uh, so beautifully. I mean, you really have a, a way with words. Um, it's it's a very easy and comfortable and, and intimate read. Um, and so, I, you know, I just want listeners to know that that this book, um, it, it's not one of those where I got to read, you know, X amount of paragraph or um, um, chapters before, <laughs> right. before I get into it. it it's not going to be a struggle at all. I mean, you you capture us right from the get go um, in this book in in the way that you tell a story, um, you know, and it's it's just it, it's really it's really nicely nicely done. Can you share with us, um, you know? What were a couple of your most difficult experiences with with this disease and and living with this diagnosis in your family? There were two or three stages along the way. One, the first was my my mother had died several years prior, and my father had remarried. He'd been remarried for about fifteen years, and you know his marriage worked for him. But as is the case sometimes with second marriage, it didn't necessarily work all that great for his kids. You know, that's just, that's life. So when when you see your father going through this, and you're not the direct care, caregiver, you're just the support system, you know, there, there's a challenge of, okay, is his wife doing everything possible? And is, is she doing this? And, and so the, the first thing is you bring too much, at least I did, bring too much blame to the table because you're so upset with what's going on. And, and then as, as the disease takes its course, there's a lot of denial. I think everybody who is either a caregiver or a support giver, we go through that stage of denial of, that's eh, not really as bad as you think it is. And then you'll have that experience. And for me, the experience was what we call the little man, and I go into it in depth in the book, where I was visiting with my father, and he started to have these hallucinations where he thought there were what he called the little people running through his house, tormenting him, poking fun at him, irritating him. And he was getting visibly upset. He was going through that stage of Alzheimer's where anger is a huge part of it. And it was completely unsettling to see my father, who had been an extraordinarily sensible, grounded man, to be having this hallucination where he was so upset. And then helping, being very compassionate, helping him through that. And then as the disease progressed, I, I think the toughest part we all go through is the day you know is going to come, but when it arrives, there's nothing that could have prepared you for it. When you yeah. look into your father's eyes and he doesn't know who you are, that's, that's I a think tough that one. hits you. In, yeah, I think that hits everybody with a thud of a mule kick to the chest. Yep. How, what was your What was your uh, kind of immediate reaction and then even trying to process it. How did you, because everybody processes that one differently. The the first thing I, I felt was visceral. It was just a deep sense of someone has stolen my father. Mm-hmm. And then as I moved through that, it's interesting, the person I relied on most for that was the lessons my mother had taught me. I always tell people, my mother taught me about love. My father taught me about strength. Mm-hmm. And so 
I realized from that point forward in my relationship with my dad, and it was probably less than a year, he would never really know who I was. He wasn't going to be able to say to ask me how the kids were, how are Katie and Zach, how my wife is, you know, what's Leanne doing, and how are you. There would no there would no longer be reinforcement in our relationship. So from that point forward, I knew my my relationship with my father had to be complete unconditional love. And, and for those of us who have been children and parents, really, the only people in your life who it's easy to be unconditionally loving towards are your are, are your children. Everybody else, your love's kind of conditional. And so I had to grow in my own relationship with my father at the end of his life to where I could love him unconditionally, knowing he would not have any sense of me, what I was giving him, and our relationship. You know, it's it's interesting you bring up unconditional love because um, through my 30-year journey with this, <clears throat> I have found so many different levels of unconditional love I didn't know existed through this disease because the disease has challenged me to say, do you want to stay connected or are you just going to walk away? You know, what are you going to do? At every turn with that, exactly, because it's, you know, until you go through it, it's easy from a a distance. It's easy to look at a neighbor go through it, a friend, uh, an acquaintance at work. Until you go through it every day, every moment, you, you don't realize how all-encompassing it is. I mean, it's, it's a harness that gets on you, and you can't shed it, and then you want to shed it, and then you go through all of those emotions that you're, that you're alluding to. Yep. And one of the things that I found, too, when, you know, you brought up about the, the name, you know, because it it's just such a devastating moment for for everyone. Um, who who goes through this, and it it's something that haunts people way before it even happens. People try to prepare for it and think about it, and that's not going to happen. And you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to prevent it. And and the thing with this disease is we can't prevent it from taking its twists or turns. That's the nature of the event. But one of the things that I um, sat back and really um, found really interesting was people would always ask me. You know, does your mom still know you? And what I realized um, over time was that people asked me that question for two completely different reasons. Some people really wanted to know and were concerned and wanted to know how is she doing, and others wanted to give me permission to not have to go see her again. Yes. Because it was painful for them and uncomfortable for them to have this discussion because they didn't know what they could do for me, how to support me. So it would be easier for them if I didn't have to mention it. So if they could give me permission to disengage, that would make their life easier. And that was like this huge revelation to me of, oh, my gosh, we need so much education (laughs) You know, on this, and and granted it's frustrating, but your kids frustrate you, your spouse, I mean, your coworkers, we go through that with everybody at certain times, but you just don't walk away, you know. I completely agree. And, and, you know, these relationships with these different levels of, of learning how to love differently, learning how to communicate differently, learning how to um Become at peace at the quiet or the simple things that didn't used to register. Anyways, they didn't with me as much as they do today. 
I mean, they have been just beautiful gifts, beautiful gifts. Um, and have changed my life and how I look at it and how I want to live it. And, and um, you know, those are the things that we have to start talking to people about is, you know, how do we support? Um, because this could be us next. Oh, you know, there's no the, doubt. I mean, with, with the statistics yeah. of somebody getting Alzheimer's every 68 seconds, mm-hmm. if you do the math, in the course of your life, you won't be able to walk 15 feet without bumping into somebody who's affected by Alzheimer's. It's it's, it's that prevalent. Exactly. And so, um, you know, having books like yours, having conversations like we're having today are just so critically important. I um, I was reading on LinkedIn the other day. Somebody said, you know, I, I, I like getting all the research and the statistics, but what really helps me shift and learn are all these heartfelt stories and and personal memoirs and experiences that I'm hearing about that I can I can connect with people on Facebook and talk about or in a memory cafe or through a book like yours. Um, those are the those are the things that are really making a difference in shifting our care culture. And and I don't think that they're given the um I don't want to say gratitude. I don't think they're given the appreciation um, on a whole from society as to their power. And I think, Laurie, it's because there's a part of society that believes or or hopes that Alzheimer's research will have the same outcome that polio research did, that it eradicates it. And one day you don't have to worry about it anymore. And and wouldn't that be wonderful? And and let's hope that does happen. But realistically, that probably isn't going to happen, at least not for quite some time. Not in our lifetime. (laughs) Right. So, So the bigger issue is exactly what you're addressing, and that is those who are the caregivers, those whose lives are indirectly and directly affected by it, and how we do a better job of helping people on that journey that life has taken them for, for reasons we don't fully understand. Mm-hmm. And, and it's how I've started to develop my philosophy of, and I deeply believe this, that the core of this has to do with connection. When you watch people get lost in their own lives, why are they getting lost? Is it because of some permutation in DNA? Is it because of some head injury they suffered on a football field as a 23-year-old? Or is it something deeper that a microscope can't find? Is it something like my father where when he was told he could no longer have his connection to what defined him that he then got lost for the last five years of his life? To me, those are things that more than science must research. We have to do that as a, as a collective, as, as people who are willing to see the science but also willing to look for the soul. Yep. Um, one of our um, listeners, Rick Phelps, who has a group called Memory People, wrote, I love the analogy of dementia is a disease that affects the soul as much as this disease affects the brain. He says this is so true. The disease does affect our very soul. And I've said this many times. Um, dementia is much, much more than just losing your memory. And um, Harry Urban, who has the group on Facebook, Forget Me Not, um, both these men um, are living living with this disease. And Harry writes, 
the day that your loved one forgets um, who you are and and you have not said goodbye, um, you may have waited too long. You know, so it, you know it's so important to make these connections and and to really embrace them um, wholeheartedly and and realize that you know we communicate. Um, I don't know for you, but <clears throat> I mean, I always knew that we had nonverbals, and I always knew that I was good at reading them, but I, I took them for granted, and I don't take them for granted anymore, and I've honed right. them even more. Um, and, you know, people go, how do you know that's what she wants? And I'm like, well, didn't you see that that just little glint in her eye that was just there for a second or that 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 little snippet of a smile that you know i mean it's just really tiny tiny little things but as a as a daughter and a and a care partner when i recognize those things that just brings me such great joy and i don't i don't know do you get that experience too when you when you would get it um you yes. know, when you but, I, and Lori, that speaks directly to what you were talking about in terms of relationship those mm-hmm. only come because you're not willing to walk away. Mm-hmm. Those those nonverbals, those expanded abilities to communicate without words only come because you stayed with the journey when others were giving you permission to walk away. And, and I think yep. those are the things you discover because, look, we all discover who we are in the, in the, in the, in the course of our life in relationship to others. We don't discover who we are sitting alone in a, in a white room with no doors and no windows, we'd be totally lost. It's, it's mm-hmm. our relationship with others over the journey of our lives that help us figure out and shape and choose who we are and who we become. And when you are challenged to communicate with someone you love who has been stripped of the use of, of words and recognition, that will force you to become something that you did not even think about 20 years prior to that. And so... Even at that stage, your parent is still helping you grow. Oh yeah, yeah. My my mom has. Um, I mean, she's been my mentor, and and she was since I was a little girl. But throughout this whole disease, and even in her end stages now, um, she still is my mentor. She is still teaching me so many things, and. It's kind of bizarre, and some people think I, I might be a little wacko on this, but I'll say it anyways because um, I, I think it just shows the depth of our connections um, that that we have grown to. She comes to me in dreams now and tells me what to do and gives me guidance. You know, she um, came to me in a dream the other night, well, it was a few months ago, and says, you know, you need to watch me get bathed and you need to watch me get my hair done. You need this for training. And then poof, she was gone. You know, and she was there like in full color in front of me, just very happy, kind of her old self, you know, very um, vibrant. And and so I, you know, set up a time to do that. And, you know, I learned a lot of great things. And it, it's just, it's kind of amazing how we are able to um, communicate now just by sitting still you know, or not even being in the same room, like through a dream. I never would have would have um, thought of that connection. But I think it's because I, am, I have opened myself up to just connecting on whatever level it comes to me at. 
um, with her because it's it's such a precious connection. And um, you know, I, I I just I'm amazed every time I I go you know to supper to feed her, um, you know, because she can't do anything for herself, but the joy I get in just being in her presence. Is, That's not is, crazy in the least. That That is a very mature, expanded understanding of reality. Teilhard de Chardin, who is a, a famed theologian and spiritualist and whom I've heard uh, Wayne Dyer talking about extensively, has the, the consummate question that really forces you to, to think of reality, and that is, are we physical beings having a spiritual experience, or are we spiritual beings having a physical experience? Yep. And so if, if you see if you see Alzheimer's as merely a physical condition, well, then it's just a deterioration of life, and it's the last part of the journey, and it's and it's and it's just entropy running its course. But if you see life as a spiritual existence, then seeing your mother in dreams, still communicating with your mother, even though she can no longer speak, even though she can no longer recognize you in her body, tells you what what the bigger issue is. And and and, and the reason I bring all this up, Lori, is be, as we as a society move towards more technology, and technology becomes something that starts to favor younger and younger people, we're dismissing the last part of people's lives collectively. We are no longer a society as the American Indian societies were that held great reverence for our most aged members. We don't hold, we don't treasure the wisdom that the elderly in our society can share with us if we will let them. And and, and to me, I think Alzheimer's is, is partially a manifestation of the collective sense we have as a society of no longer treasuring the people who have the greatest wisdom that we are not allowing them to share. Well, that's that's interesting because I've always thought that this disease is here to teach us a lesson that, you know, we've been slapped upside the head as a society and as a world for a long time and no one's listening. Everyone's still after, you know, the money and the greed and the whole, the whole process there. And this thing is just going to bring us to a standstill. And people know that from an economic um, perspective, from a social perspective, if we don't change our ways. And I, I think it's going to do it in a brilliant fashion. And I I see that. I mean, I, I've watched the change over 30 years, and the last five years has been so profound to me in terms of technology actually helping in this dance connect people and share knowledge. And I'm, I'm seeing this grassroots effort that says, you know, be damned government, be damned, you know, whoever is going to get in our way, we are going to make this better, you know. So get on board or get out of our way because we're not going away. And it's it's um, fabulous to see this energy all around the world, people connecting and sharing and talking and having conversations. And, you know, like the U.K. giving me... The, their memory cafe, rewriting, you know, their documents to be U.S. friendly and not wanting a nickel in saying it's right. not about that. It is, this is bigger than any of us, and we have to stop trying to think we can own it or fix it as one. You know, every 
every person with dementia is different, every care partner is different, every environment is different. And even if those three things stay constant for a short period of time, they they still change, you know. Um, so you can, you know, so what works one moment won't the next. And so we've got to become fluid and creative and, and allow, you know, to kind of rebirth that in people. Because I think as a society, we've taken that away. We've said, you know, here's the box. Jump in. Stay here. <laughs> this is this is the cage where we feel comfortable. So these are the rules. And and I think that box is kind of kind of get flattened in this process. And we're going to function as people very differently. And it's going to take some time. Um, but the um, the progress that is being made by people who are passionate about making change and being inclusive um is is pretty massive and it's pretty powerful and, and we can oh. use technology as a way to bridge generations or we can continue to allow technology to truncate the sense of connection that our older generations have. And it's one of the scenes that I write about in the book that was so powerful to me. If you think of technology and elderly people, it tends to be a dividing line. There's there's an age at which, no, you're not going to see a person texting, and no, you're not going to see them on a laptop, and no, you're not going to see them reading a book on an iPad. And so technology tends to be something that isolates them if they have to try to use technology by themselves. But my children showed me this magnificent experience with my father he, he probably had alzheimer's for a couple of years and was was still cognizant and, and had those windows where he was still very much aware of what was going on and so we'd gone to visit him and my son was, was young and, and loved to play the video game madden or the the uh, digital football game he was, and jack was great with it and you know his thumbs could fly at a million miles an hour and obviously <laughs> my father had no computer proficiency and no digital game proficiency whatsoever so my son sat down with my father, and, and they were one team, and I was the other team. And my son, who could manipulate the computer so quickly, would call up all the digital playbooks and all the different scenarios. And my father, who had been a football player and coach his whole life, would tell my son which type of a play, you know, a cover two, a zone blitz, a three-receiver set, he would tell him the football particulars that my son would then program it into the game real quickly and run against me. And together, they crushed me 70-7 to 7 in this game. And the beauty of it was, watch, was, was not just the final score, but was watching my son and then my daughter gravitate to, to their grandfather and experience his vast knowledge and wisdom of this football game, of this football universe that they only knew from a, a point of view of technology, but he knew intimately. And to me, that was this brilliant example of watching one generation connect to another using technology instead of making technology something that if my father and I had just tried to sit down and play Madden, he wouldn't have been able to play for one second. So I think there is yeah. there are many ways that technology can bridge generations and become inclusive to the older members of our society instead of making them feel disconnected and isolated. I I so agree. I so agree. Um, 
can you talk, are you comfortable talking about, you know, your dad was a former football player, and do you think that there was any link between head trauma and playing the game and him experiencing, you know, um, Alzheimer's disease? I don't know, and and I fully support all of the research in those areas. I suspect if there is a link, it's probably at the younger age and less at the older age, the NFL age, simply because we don't know what's going on on the Little League fields and on the high school fields nearly as much as we do in the controlled atmosphere of of the NFL. We also don't know, is it a compilation of all of those head traumas, some we don't even know about, uh, you know, guys Mm -hmm. who take bumps. You know, the culture of football, the culture of sports has been for years this phrase, shake it off, move on. Those four words. You know, just, if you're a little dinged up, go ahead, move on. And, and in sports, we use phrases like there's a difference between being being hurt and there's a difference between being injured. You know, if you're hurt, you just play for the pain. But if you're injured, then, then you stop. And, and for my father's generation, for years, those guys, if, if they if they would say, oh, I think he got his bell rung. Well, in reality, in hindsight, clearly he got a concussion and he shouldn't have been out there. So, so I think pro football and college football and high school football and the trickle-down world that, that sports is has created a much greater awareness and, and is moving in the right direction in terms of creating more safe environment for players to practice and play in and when to pull players out of games because of head trauma. Here's what we do know, Lori, is that head trauma doesn't benefit anybody. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet the direct link for what type of head trauma, how much head trauma, and what point in your life you experience head trauma can possibly lead to dementia and Alzheimer's. It seems like there is a pretty natural, common-sense link there, and I think the medical community is doing a great job of, of following that path. But again, I come away from the whole thing having had this conversation with dozens and dozens of former pro football players, and I've asked them all, knowing what you know now, experiencing what you experience now, would you do it all again? And to a man, they've all said, yes, I would do it all again, but I would be a little bit more cautious about playing through being dizzy in practice about getting banged up in a game and staying in there. I'd be a little bit more sensible about it, but I would do it all again because there's such a sense of connection and such a sense of self involved between themselves and that game. So any movement to eliminate football, to eliminate contact, I would I would say no, that, that's the wrong conclusion because it's as much a product of these men being separated from that game as suffering head trauma that, in my opinion, leads them to dementia and Alzheimer's. Well, and and that's you know that's a whole another um, a whole another piece you know of this. Um, one thing I do want to mention before I go down um, before I go down that path is one of the things that I would love to see the NFL and actually all sports and all schools. Um, really get behind and it's a it's a very simple inexpensive but very powerful powerful tool and it's a it's a tool that barbara brock um, developed called the reality comprehensive comprehension clock test 
And we've all heard about the clock test. You know, people sit down and draw this clock. Hers is different, and, and what what's different about it is it tests different parts of the brain. And so if you're asking somebody on the sidelines, you know, hey, how many fingers do I have up? You know, and they can see it and you throw them back out, you know, onto the field. And, again, I'm very much a novice. I'm not into the professional. You know, I'm not on the sidelines down there, but just from kids playing, you know, football or any type of sports. I mean, it was very simple, you know, response we were asking for. It takes – max 20 minutes for people to sit down and draw this clock but it tests all portions of the brain so their sight might be picking up something but you know other portions of their brain might not be and it's going to grab that immediately and it's um you know it costs under four hundred dollars to to get certified to be a tester and um it's amazing and it's only like four hours in um time to do this and then they give you unlimited support in terms of analyzing the tests if you need somebody and I think it could make such a big difference in terms of what we're doing with people with concussions and you know how much damage really is there um, and it's short it's inexpensive um, and I, I you know I would just love to see people investigate that and test it out and see what they think um, because I think it could help a lot a lot of people um, and take some of the scariness out of this because right now I think there's a lot of scariness amongst um, kids, um, amongst parents and grandparents of what's going on with their kids um, as well as now every time somebody's watching the game as much as, you know, we like to see them, you know, tackle and we like to see them, you know, um, play hockey and smack them into the boards and, you know, even the headbutts, you know, in soccer and stuff, you know, more and more people are starting to, to think in the back of their mind, geez, how much does that hurt? You know, we always kind of associated pain with it, but we didn't associate long-term damage potential. And I think, and that's I think definitely the big push now in, in research. And, and and I can actually give you a strategy to develop, to, to kind of implement your idea because I think it's a very sound idea. And the strategy is to go through high school moms and middle school moms, you know, mothers of middle school athletes and high school athletes. And and the reason for this is the single biggest concern in the highest levels of pro sports are moms. In football, the concern is that if more and more moms aren't going to let their kids play football, then the popularity of the NFL will eventually diminish because the talent of pool, the pool talent would eventually diminish and it would lead to a trickle-down effect. And so part of the push for the NFL to be so involved in the development of this research and making sure that research is pushed all the way down to the high school level is because there has been a strong pushback and concern from moms. And, you know, as we all know, moms have tremendous power in ways that aren't necessarily obvious to the onlooker. And the NFL, I know, and NHL and NBA and Major League Baseball, they are all very much attuned to the concerns of moms and grandmoms at younger ages. And so Mm -hmm. this really is a grassroots effort now. Yep. 
Yep, uh, and I, I so I so much agree with that. Um, Rick Phelps is saying my thing is about the mini mental testing is that there was it was never set up to make a diagnosis. I was tested recently and scored twenty. He says which is really low. Um, oops, then he said disregard. Sorry about that. It wasn't in a message to me. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. I guess I wasn't supposed to say that publicly. Um, so he's you know. He was trying to write to someone privately. But again, again, the tests that are being used out there aren't always what's needed. Um, and like you said, the grassroots effort gets a lot, a lot of attention. So if anyone is, is interested in this particular clock test, um, they can go to um, clock test, rcct.com, clock test, rcct.com and then um, just talk with Barbara Brock she's brilliant I had her on the show in fact you can go back in the history and um, probably look that show up and and listen to it if you're interested as well but um, like I said I went through it just because not that I wanted to be certified but that I wanted to really learn more about it and I was amazed at the knowledge that could come out of this test um, the you know pain that could be found when they couldn't communicate it, um, you know um, vision being you know askew, um, it, it just it was it was endless from urinary tract infections and, and fall prevention. It was it was absolutely incredible. Um, and so yeah, that's definitely I know on Barbara's list. And so I just going to shoot her an email to listen to this and uh, maybe she'll be able to pick up some some ideas um and again that's really you powerful know, and, it, and it contributes to it, incre- the expanded awareness you know we're, we talk about football but my son who's a freshman in college now his senior year in high school he suffered a concussion in baseball he played four years mm-hmm. of high school football never had a concussion his senior year he's diving for a foul ball or a fly ball and makes the dive and, and his head comes down and the brim of his cap hits the ground really hard and it, and it jars him. Kind of a play that 10 years ago, I don't think anybody would have given a second thought to that, wow, he, he may have a concussion on that. But he came home and, and, and I could tell something was a little bit off, so we immediately got him to uh, one of the Baltimore Ravens doctors who I knew would be very much aware of concussions. And sure enough, he had suffered a concussion. And the reason that I got him to the doctor was, when he came home, his athletic trainer from the high school had called me and told me about the injury and said, I've got a couple of concerns. If, if you have somebody to follow up with, I would encourage that. Ten years ago, that conversation doesn't happen. So, Lori, I, I think promoting work like the clock test from Barbara, uh, Barbara Brock? Bar- Barbara Brock, Brethren, yeah. Yep. I think you know those things at a grassroots level, they expand the awareness of coaches, of trainers, of parents, and the sooner we're all aware of these things at young athlete ages, I think the less we'll see problems for older athletes. Yeah, and and I agree. You know, the sport's not going to go away. Um, you know, it it may change a little bit. People's expectations might just change and and have a big sure. um, influence on the game. You know, Those um, because the sport shouldn't go away. Lord, because there's so many great things that we learn from sport. We you know we learn teamwork, we learn dedication, we learn goal setting, we learn how to work with others, we learn how to put others in front of ourselves, we learn 
how to delay gratification. There's so many wonderful lessons we learn from sports that this doesn't have to be an either or. This doesn't have to be either we eliminate sports or we we don't you know have head head trauma problems. This can be an and. We can do a better job of creating environments for our children and our grandchildren to grow up having sports as part of their education in life and still have them on the path to lead healthy physical and spiritual lives. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I wanted to ask you, because um, we're almost to an hour here, and I could talk to you all day, and I would, I would, we can easily go longer, <laughs> but I want to be respectful of your time in terms of um, how much time you can still spend with us or if you need to, if you need to scoot kind of at that hour mark or not. Uh, I've got a little bit, but I, but I do have another appointment coming up. Okay, sounds good. Um, I just wanted to see if I could squeak out a little bit more time with you because I just have found this fascinating and I think our listeners have as well. Um, now that you've kind of experienced, you know, Alzheimer's with, with your, you know, a loved one with your father, what's the single biggest thing that you wish you would have known ahead of time when it comes to this disease? I wish I would have had resources like yours that you've created, that uh, caregiver.org has created. I wish I would have known all of the, uh, that the Alzheimer's Association has created. We put so much focus on finding the doctors, looking for the right pill, what is the, the correct medical path, that we didn't put any energy into finding support for my father's wife, for the caregivers who were involved, for the family members. We didn't. We didn't reach out, we didn't develop, we didn't find the ways to support everyone else who was affected by Alzheimer's so that we could be as strong as possible to help my father on his journey. We were so focused on the medical that at the time wasn't as developed as it is now that I think everybody around it, we all ground down. We we, we forgot that the caretaker has to be taken care of as well. Which is which is very very important, very very important. And you know, one of the things that um, I, I think is really interesting what you said is about you know supporting the family. Like with the Memory Cafe, I actually um, we had an event here at the Guthrie um, out east. In fact, I'll, I'll give a plug to a friend of mine, Jonathan Brooks, is going to be at the Duke Theater in New York. She opens on I think Valentine's Day. And she's got a play called My Mother Has Four Noses, and it is an absolutely brilliant one-woman show um, musical that talks about dementia, and it it shows the growth of relationship and the intimacy and um, just that unconditional love that we've talked about. I mean, it's just beautifully, beautifully done. And um, where the heck was I going with this? <laughs> Um, I totally lost my train of thought by giving her a plug because I'm so excited that she's on on Broadway. But anyways, we were doing a – she was here at the Guthrie in Minnesota, and we did a talk back one night after one of her shows. And, um, you know, several people in the audience, you know, um, came up afterwards. And one of them came up and grabbed my hand and said, I just want to thank you so much for your memory cafe. She says, it has changed our family's lives. My parents go there. Wow. And and that was something that 
You know, I, I knew it would help, but I didn't know to the level that it would help. And she was, she, she just says it, it's changed everything. It's it's changed them. It's changed us. We have we've just are constantly learning, and we're having these conversations now over going to I call it a gathering versus a support group where people are allowed to have their relationships back instead of being a care partner and a care receiver, um, their husband and wife again. And and they're with friends again. And they're able to gain knowledge and share knowledge and, and give knowledge. Um, that's powerful stuff, this sharing, this simple little sharing is, is so powerful. And it's so... Um, so effective and 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 not doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg you know to have these conversations so and every little bit of support along the journey makes it possible for those who are on that path to continue to draw some strength and to, and to soldier on and to draw strength from others if you've ever watched a marathon in the Summer Olympics or, or in your cities, if you've ever watched a marathon, you'll notice they have water stations every couple of miles. Every couple mm-hmm. of miles they'll hand out little energy packets. There's people along the streets cheering people on. And what it, what it does is it doesn't make running a marathon easy. Everybody knows that's hard, but it makes it possible. It's why people who train for a marathon only train to run 20 miles, even though a marathon is 26 miles, because the expression is the crowd will carry you in the last six miles because you've had support along the way. And and Alzheimer's caregiving is the same thing. It's not going to be an easy journey. Nobody's going to fool you and tell you that. But if there's some support for the caregivers, if there's a touch point of friendship, if there's a shared experience, if there's some wisdom to be shared along the way, if there's just a reinforcement that you're not alone, I think that makes the journey much more possible, much more powerful. Oh, I, I so agree. And it... You know, it's also when we when we pass this information on, we realize that we all have information to share. You know, we all think that we're novices and we don't know enough until somebody comes up behind us that's newer on the path. And, exactly. and they feel empowered to share and to help. Because if there's one thing that I've seen that everyone has in common with this disease is they don't want the next guy to have to go through what they went through. It's one of the worst clubs in the world to belong to. Yep, yep. Um, how how has Alzheimer's impacted your life since your father has passed? Can I? Are you willing to share that with us? Sure, yeah. I think it just makes me much more aware of, it's part of the reason I wrote the book, it's part of the, you know, the, the, the awareness that you have of how many people are affected by it. I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many conversations I've had with people who will say, oh, you know, my father has Alzheimer's, my grandfather has Alzheimer's, my aunt has Alzheimer's, my whomever, and, and you start to realize how many people are affected, and it gives you a chance to be that support system. Instead of being mm-hmm. the person who's running the marathon, once you run that marathon, it's important to stand on the sidelines and hand out the water and hand out the energy packet and cheer for people along the way and give them support so that they know that you're on a tough path. can't really lighten your load, 
but I can help you run with greater strength, greater courage, and greater wisdom. Wow. Wow. I, um, you know, I, I'm struggling because I know my mom's on hospice right now a little, and so I'm wondering how, you know, how is that next phase going to affect me? And I, I know what the past 30 have done, but how's it going to be? And, right. and you, you know, you can't prepare. We try to, um, but you just never can. And I, I think what a beautiful thing you've done by writing this book and, and really honoring your, your father and your family and, and, um, and the NFL in terms of, you know, the story, um, keeping the story alive and, and raising awareness. So I, I can't thank you enough for that. Um, Jerry, how how should people contact you if they're interested in in learning more or to get the book? Um, what's what's the, the easiest best thing way? to do is, is just go right to my website, which is jerrysandusky dot com, and it's Jerry with a G G E R R Y S A N D U S K Y dot com. No no relation to the former Penn State coach, and, and the book does cover that as well. And uh, and uh, you can find the book on Amazon as well, Forgotten Sundays. But if you just go to my website, jerrysandusky.com, all of my contact information is there, and I would look forward to continuing the conversation with anyone who would like to. Wonderful. Well, again, I cannot thank you enough for your time, and we've gotten some comments here that people have um, really, really enjoyed this show, and I'm going to be pushing it out all over because I think – um, I, th- I think your book is absolutely fabulous, Forgotten Sundays. I highly encourage people. I, th- I think it'll be a, a fun, easy, um, great read with a lot of depth. Um, and really, you're you're going to get to know the Sandusky family, and and you know what things were like, um, you know, for them in this process and growing up and so forth. Um, you just you just have really done a brilliant brilliant job with that and i again i cannot thank you enough for your time today um i've got one last question for you if you have time for it you got it okay what are your thoughts on the you know the settlement with the nfl and the funds and the judge now coming back saying "Eh, that's not enough money you know what 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 are your what are your thoughts just in this whole process um, that that's transformed with uh, with this lawsuit. Any any comments that you care to share? You, you know, I think the judge showed some wisdom in in realizing that this is probably a much bigger issue down the line than either side is fully aware of at the moment. My, my concern with the lawsuit is that until they can settle. The legal aspect of it, they're never really going to move forward in terms of the greater research and the greater depth of knowledge because, let's face it, if there's a lawsuit pending, research becomes the enemy, not the friend. Yeah. So until you can get past the litigious nature of this, I don't think you can move forward as a, as a group, as NFL owners players, fans, participants, moms, grandmoms, as one saying, this is a great game. This is, this is a powerful part of our, our society, our community. 
let's let, let's make this the best thing it can be, and let's keep our players safe. Until you can get past the litigious aspect of it, I don't think that will happen. So my hope is that this lawsuit finds a conclusion that is satisfactory to both sides and that encourages both sides to dig as deep as possible into the research to make it the best, safest game possible. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I just found ironic with, you know, the, the judge's call, and I, and I didn't read the whole thing, so um, correct me if I if I misspeak here, but, you know, the NFL is putting up more money than our country is <laughs> you know, for this. Right. And I just and I just find that really ironic. Um and you know, where's the judge that's gonna tell our government that we need to start doing things different and and I you know, I I applaud, you know, where things have gone with this. Um I, I think it's a massive amount of money. Um I, I think, you know, they're putting money away for the attorneys, they're putting money away for the players and you know what, it's it's not um, it's not enough, and it'll never be enough. But it's not enough for anybody. But it's a start. And you know, one of the things that I get so frustrated with is everyone tries to make this perfect package, and it's not going to be perfect. We just have to make progress. We have to start, and then we have to, you know, shift and make changes um, as it goes. I, I would love to see the NFL embrace the global purple angel as a symbol just to raise awareness and to show their support, not to say, hey, we're causing it, just to say we've got a platform that can make a difference, just like they have with, you know, breast cancer. Um, They could do such a massive movement, and it wouldn't cost them anything but to add a symbol to, you know, their marketing materials, um, which they're constantly developing. Um, They could, um, you know, hook up to resources on their on their website just as a link out to companies like myself Alzheimer's Speaks and the Alzheimer's Association you know I, I'm developing a, a resource directory um, that would probably get a huge lift that costs people no money to participate in um, because I've built it as a collaborative but could gain awareness by that kind of alignment and could help others by having conversations and getting connections because families don't even know the questions to ask. You know, they don't know what to Google. They don't know where to go. And um, there's just so much that could be done through an educational process that wouldn't have to cost an arm and a leg and that they could really lift this disease to a whole nother level of awareness given the publicity that they have, given the attention that they're drawing. I just see it as a a horrible waste of an opportunity um, to be tied in the litigation, like you said, and not moving forward when they've they've got And, some... and with a little luck, once once the litigation is settled, then you can see those pieces start to, to come into play. Mhm. Yep. And, uh, I think and, that's a very viable hope. Yep. And for me, I'll, I'll hope that they even decide to take something on sooner. 
you know, and maybe the players' Amen. wives and families will will get behind it and and want to push it. And if and if anyone's interested in having that discussion, please contact me uh, through the Alzheimer Speaks website. We have lots of free resources for people that are just there for the taking. Um, conversations like this on the radio show and our dementia chats, which we're having this afternoon, where I interview people with dementia. And the public's able to, um, you know, make comments and ask questions because we can't always ask our loved ones certain things. Um, and we can find support in different ways. So, again, Jerry, thank you so much for your time, your energy, um, and, and all you are doing um, to not only honor your dad and your family, um, but to, to raise awareness. It's just a, it's a great, great thing, and I, I really respect that very much. Lori, thank you. It was a real pleasure visiting with you and your listeners today. Great. You have a wonderful week, okay? You too. Thank you. Well, what a what a wonderful conversation. Um I just I learned so much. Um it was just a fabulous, fabulous time. If if anybody has um any questions or comments um, I know that Jerry needed to get going, and I wanted to be respectful of that, but I can always communicate with him. Um, or, you know, you can always uh, get a hold of him through his website as well, Jerry Zandusky, Sandusky.com, um, and that's right there on the on the website. Um, and we'll be pushing this out. I would love... Um, I would love for you to also help push uh, this episode out. Maybe we can get the attention of the NFL um, or those that are influential. Um, maybe it's moms with football players, like like Jerry said. Um, but anybody who who thinks they might have uh, some ideas and some connections, uh, connect with me. I, I just think that this is a, a horrible waste that we can't tap into. Um, the publicity that this is getting at this point to raise awareness. Um, before I end the show, I do want to just highlight a couple of things. Um, our last uh, radio show was about spreading educational awareness, and Jane Claremont is on her tour in North Dakota, which is free. And you can get information on our blog um, regarding that. And then there is also the free TELUS Summit, <coughs> Summit that is going on this week. And you can go to our blog to get information on that as well. Just go to uh, com. In fact, right on the front page there, you can click on the, the Telesummit. Um, and then to get to the blog, that's just over to the, the right there. You can click on any of the the articles and it'll bring bring you to that. There were um there was also a two hour um program that was done for the rabbis on Alzheimer's and those videos are available. And um <clears throat> I'm also requesting that people uh write to Napa and that's the National Alzheimer's uh plan. Um, and ask them to back the Purple Angel. Uh, get on the bandwagon with this new global symbol. I, I think it will do the U.S. a big injustice if they don't get behind this um, because it is spreading all around the world, and we need one symbol, one mark um, that that says dementia um, so that we can you know, show this collabor- collaborative um movement again that started in the UK. 
Next week, we're going to have well-known journalist and author um, Nell Lake with us, and she's going to discuss her new book, The Caregivers, a support group's um, story of slow loss. She did massive um, interviews with this, and they talk about the loss, the courage, and the love, and I think there'll be lots to gain uh, with that show. It'll be at the same time as always. And then this afternoon, we have our dementia chat session that'll start at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, 2 Central, 1 Mountain, and that would be noon uh, Pacific Time. There's no fee to join that. Again, you can just go to the blog to get information or go to Dementia Chats, uh, like us on Facebook, and the information is there as well. Our last session was on the 29th where we discussed um, the importance of relationships and connecting and how to tell um, when somebody wants something or needs something when they don't speak. Well, we also talked a lot about um, people's moods affecting someone with dementia and um, how to kind of reprioritize and balance life with dementia. So it was a very... Very, very interesting uh, conversation uh, that we had. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. Um, I, again, appreciate the conversations. Would love to hear your comments regarding this show and would very much appreciate you being able to share um, this show with others and encourage them to um, to listen to it. I think that there were a lot of good uh, tidbits in there, and again, don't forget if you're if you like to read, check out that book, Forgotten Sundays. Um, in the meantime, have a brilliant day, and we'll talk soon. Bye now. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.